Whenever there's a data breach, a ransomware attack, a large security event in general, I like to learn something about how it happened. You know, peel back the onion to see what steps were used in the exploit chain. To see all the cool ways an attacker evaded detection in a system. One of the more clever techniques is to hide in plain sight. Consider something called steganography. This is the practice of concealing messages or information in non-secret text or data, such as an image. If you think about it, an image file format has a lot of unused space. If you look at the specs for, say, a JPEG, there's a lot of space in the file that is typically not used. And even if it's all used, there are ways to change the colors on the pixels so that the human eye can't really see the difference, but a machine might. And this becomes an opportunity for someone to fill that space with other code or a message. Think of it as a Trojan horse. And unless you're specifically looking for it, messages within images, well, they're typically hard to find. In a 2010 academic paper, researchers found that the Xbox gaming system, among others, enabled gangs and terrorist organizations to communicate. They also found that defendants sentenced to house arrest, particularly sex offenders, who were often prohibited from using a computer to access the internet, still had access to their gaming consoles, and therefore, regrettably, still having the capability of trading illicit photos over the internet. So I started thinking about other ways to hide messages, or even how to get malware onto a system without it being detected. What if you hid in plain sight by using the files already on your computer? Like all the unused files within your operating system. They'd be allowed, right? In a few moments, I'll talk to somebody who shows us how it can be done. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about living off the land or fileless malware, specifically looking at Felina, Microsoft Office attack, the Kaseya ransomware attack, and how important it is today for small and medium-sized businesses to have enterprise-grade security, given the nature of these attacks. For about a decade, I wrote for Forbes.com, and while I was there, I got to interview a lot of great people, such as Katie Masuris, interviewed her twice, interviewed Katie Nichols, interviewed her once, and a lot of people not named Katie. And one of those Forbes.com interviews stayed with me, and when I saw that that person was going to be at RSAC this year, I figured, well, it was a good opportunity for the two of us to catch up. Kyle Hansloven, CEO at Huntress. So a lot has happened in the world in the last two years, and a lot has happened with Kyle's company. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what's exciting for us is we started this business out when we came from NSA and said, you know what, there is a large unaddressed market that doesn't have access to expertise. So we built a managed security platform that's laser focused on delivering that expertise and simplicity at a cost the market could actually afford. And that's a pretty rewarding situation. You know, we're now over 200 employees protecting about 70,000 businesses. So I'm feeling really good from the last time we talked. One thing you'll notice is that while Kyle founded the company, it's called Huntress, 
and its logo is that of a woman. There's a good story behind it about how the company got its name. Yeah, so most people ask me all the way down to Huntress, why does she have logos? And no offense, there's a lot of hyper-masculine companies down there. I won't pick on any here, but think about it. Name your first cybersecurity company. Maybe I'll pick on one, CrowdStrike. You know, it's just a bit masculine. And even though we're all three male founders, I've got daughters, and I said, you know what? We could be a tad bit more inclusive, all the way down to her eyelashes. And so, yeah, we hunt, but we hunt with a little bit of, you know, XE-Sexy flair, and that's what the Huntress is all about. Living off the land, or fileless malware, is a threat actor leveraging the utilities readily available on a system. These could be in the operating system, or it could be a third party that's been added. It's a sneaky way to exploit a system without any of the existing preventative tools realizing what's happening, especially in small to medium-sized businesses. What's wild is most folks are still just grasping with the concept that malware isn't always something shady that people bring to computers. Sometimes it's how do you use the basic features built into the computer to do bad things, hence living off the land. My favorite one recently we've seen over and over is hackers have just almost completely stopped bringing their own exfiltration tools. And we're seeing more and more like OneDrive or Dropbox or all these built-in tools. Why carry some tool to exfiltrate data out when you could just live off the land and use those tools to exfiltrate for you? It's fun. So it's a matter of looking through the OS and finding old utilities, things that were left there from previous versions for backward compatibility. Now, as the attacker, you don't have to bring anything to the system. The system has already given you the tools that you need. So we noticed it was a trend, like all things, cat and mouse based, and hackers were really getting ticked off that their malicious payloads were getting caught by the antivirus. So we noticed the evolution was, well, you can't catch my new shady code if I don't bring some shady code with me. So it was almost out of need, necessity rather, that they said, you know what, I have and all the abilities built into Windows or built into Linux or Mac to do this for me. Why don't I use the trusted ones that'll get by antivirus? And that was kind of the, the beginning of what we saw. Perhaps Kyle can give us an example of how this works in the real world. Yeah, there's a lot. And uh, I'm going to start simple. And if we need to, we can dive in. Um, my favorite example of how this works is it's not always additive, meaning they need to bring in their own complex payloads. Sometimes, for instance, if you already have like PowerShell, a built-in component to the operating system, you don't need to carry anything with you. You bring your own PowerShell script or code, but that's no EXE, that's no DLL, and you just run it. And that's maybe the simplest version most IT folk can understand. Then there's the more sophisticated attack, one that hides within legitimate programs by the virtue of adding DLLs that can call out to a malicious payload. But you did nail it. Sometimes it can be really complex DLLs, and they call that hijacking or DLL hijacking. And what they'll do is they'll use a legitimate program that depends on a library, bring their malicious library with them, and it gets sometimes sideloaded. So that means trusted application runs, it sideloads this less trustworthy DLL, and that's often a way to be able to get around some heuristics or behavior-based detection. In a sideloading attack, an attacker places a spoofed malicious DLL file in the Windows directory so that the operating system loads it instead of a legitimate file. We often see hackers, when they're trying to do this sideloading or living off the land, twofold. It really depends what problem they're trying to solve. 
Most often we see this on initial infection. When they get in, that's when they're under the most scrutiny. And so it'll be when the operating system is running, they can do this. But if you think about for persistence, that's that idea of long-term access and becoming undetected. It's really nice to say, you know what? You're gonna catch me if I use the typical persistence mechanisms. So why don't I do some side loading? Why don't I use these legitimate tools? So when that operating system comes up and loads all the applications, you know, kindly load my malware as well. What makes Kyle's story compelling is that Kyle used to work for a three-letter agency. He used to think like this all the time. How can I get on someone's box without them even knowing? Yeah, so my background was in offensive cyber operations. I worked at NSA, both as a contractor and in the military for about 15 years, building those implants, building these exploits to do some of these attacks that we used to, you know, currently talking about. So it's interesting, Kyle was doing this for the government, doing this for the good of a nation, and yet here are attackers doing the same thing. It's kind of interesting how the thought process proceeded that both of these parties arrived at the same conclusion. It, uh, it was a synthesis, right? We needed it for our own long-term persistent access. If you imagine a counterterrorism threat, you wanna make sure that you're there no matter what they do with their laptop or computer. And cyber criminals started adapting the same. They said, you know what? I wanna collect your credit card whenever. I wanna gather your data whenever. So you're exactly right of this technique transformed and now it's part of everyday cybercrime. Okay, raise your hands out there. Before this podcast, had you ever heard of living off the land binaries or lull bins? If so, congratulate yourself. If not, keep listening. These are fairly clever attacks. Unfortunately, living off the land, persistent, side-loading, these are ones that I would call off-the-shelf. It's funny when he phrases it that way, that it's off-the-shelf, that it's so standard that you don't even have to think about it. It sort of lowers the bar as to who might actually be using it. A lot of even the you know, publicly available penetration testing or attack simulation tools have these now built in natively don't get me wrong, some hackers use much more sexy and sophisticated attacks and versions of these, but the premise has now become part of just the everyday playbook. So, like anything, there's degrees of lull bins. There's off-the-shelf, and there's still that hidden nation-state, super-sophisticated level as well. And it's going to depend on how good they're at evasion. So for the low-level using PowerShell, anybody can do it. Any script kitty, any basic IT practitioner could do some of this and be able to use these built-in tools. However, it starts escalating into, you know what? I don't want to get caught because security tooling has gotten better at looking at these malicious techniques. Even Windows, Microsoft has added techniques for looking at living off the lands, like in their built-in Defender. And so as a result, they've almost forced hackers to level up their game. So we even see like mid-level to far complex, you know, abusing built-in tools that you know, we never knew. And recently, we've started to see some of these attacks in the news. Just last week, for instance, was abusing a built-in feature within Microsoft Office. It was called the Felina attack. Here's Network Chuck explaining at a high level the Felina attack on Microsoft Office. Let's say I receive an email, a phishing email, and inside that email is a harmless-looking Word document that, of course, I have to download. But as you may have guessed, this is not any normal Word document. You see, when I open this thing, first... Okay, it's blank, nothing there. But then I get this strange pop-up, this troubleshooting message. Now remember this thing, it's the key, we'll come back to it here in a bit. Now while this thing is running, something else is happening. I'm not aware of it. You see, the hacker, he already has me. 
At this point, he has a reverse shell to my system. He has control of my system. And I have no idea what's going on. I'm just sitting here sipping coffee, trying to wake up. So clearly something happened here and it had something to do with that Word document and Microsoft Word. But it's not what you think because typically in Microsoft Office hacking scenarios, it comes down to macros. Macros are fantastic. They're scripts that allow you to automate a lot of the tasks in Microsoft Office. And of course, hackers use that to do nefarious things. But by default, in most situations, macros are disabled. And that's what makes this hack so interesting. Hackers found another way, another path a path that is still unblocked. It all comes down to this thing right here. The Microsoft Support Diagnostic Tool, or MSDT for short. For some reason, this tool, which is meant to help you troubleshoot issues, when, you, when it's invoked, when it's run, it allows you to run commands. And when I say you, I mean the attacker. And here's Hunter's Lab's John Hammond, whom I interviewed in episode 13 about capture the flag competitions with more technical details on this attack. So first, let's start with a little bit of backstory on how this caught wind within the security community. On May 27th, there was a tweet shared by NaoSec, or N-A-O underscore S-E-C, a security researcher that was looking around in VirusTotal for different attack vectors targeting CVE 2021-40444, which was a previous vulnerability that would take advantage of the MHTML protocol shenanigans stuff targeting Microsoft Office documents that could be used for initial access or remote code execution with just a simple office document. What we're talking about now is a separate vulnerability, but very, very similar. And anyway, this individual found some interesting document that was using an external reference inside of the Microsoft Word document that would call out to an external HTML file. And that HTML file would stage and load code to be ran sort of through the MSDT protocol or file schema handler. Now, MSDT is the Microsoft Support Diagnostics tool using special parameters or some specific syntax and semantics to be able to invoke PowerShell code through this was novel and interesting and weird and not something that I think the security community has been tracking before. So within a few days, other security researchers like Kevin Beaumont, Jake Williams, amongst others started to share this information and kind of suggest to others, hey, we should be looking at this because this can be pretty dangerous. It's sort of a rerun of CVE 2021-40444 but very different in that, hey, it's not patched right now. This is being exploited in the wild. Granted, I think I'm only aware of, hey, that one malicious sample, but it's not too far-fetched to think that we're going to see a lot of this maybe in the coming days. The thing to remember is that the Felina attack has been there for a while. If someone had figured this out a few years ago, they could have been using it all this time. You know, living off the land until the research community got it and realized how it could be weaponized. This is using nothing more than built-in features in the operating system in within uh, Office to load and run malicious payloads downloaded from the internet. But as a week ago, no one had really even known about that in the security research community. So that's a great example of what it looks like at the low level and obviously people ratcheting it up to the high level to get past, you know, defenders and threat hunters. As mentioned, there are two ways to do living off the land attacks. One is to use the native operating system files, and the other is to use files of a common third-party application. Within the OS, part of the problem is that large enterprises have unique requirements that sometimes causes operating systems like Microsoft Windows or platforms like Microsoft Office to retain legacy utilities. 
services, and features long past when they should. As such, when the operating system releases a new version each year, the discontinued old versions, like Windows NT out there, have ghosts within those modern operating systems. Yeah, so most often we typically see it in operating system files. And the reason for it is you can depend on them. Microsoft, using them as the example in Windows, they love their backwards compatibility. So if you find a good lull bin or living off the land binary, you can almost count on that sucker having backwards compatibility to Windows 2000. In order to cater to large enterprises, which are sometimes slow to move to newer versions of the software, Microsoft, for example, has to maintain its backward compatibility. I mean, organizations have vested time and money integrating their systems with others. And you remove a service, you remove a feature, you'll find that you'll hear from those large organizations pretty quickly. So it's a devil's bargain. Keep the old utilities around long after the original operating system it came with has been discontinued or simply discontinued the service or feature altogether. Then again, there's probably not many services or features in the native operating system left for bad guys to plunder. It's getting sometimes slim pickings. A lot of the common ones have been found. So hackers have sometimes started moving to more esoteric examples, like I previously mentioned with Felina. Or in some cases, they're looking at third-party commonly used apps. Think about, does Chrome have a capability? Does, uh, for instance, an FTP software have a capability? Could they use some of these, even Teams? Teams is often used right for chat and communicating, but we're sometimes seeing Teams being used for sending malicious files, exfiltrating malicious files, communicating lateral movement. And that's a good example of where the hacker said, you know what, in this limited case, I'm gonna use a third party app or something that's not a native operating system. So I'm wondering, are there particular industries that are targeted by these types of attacks? When it comes to initial access, we generally see attackers or threat actors use these regardless of industry. However, there are cases that you start seeing much more tailored approaches, like when you start getting into, into industrial control systems. It gets a little bit better to masquerade your attack as some of the commonly used applications. So we sometimes see the lull bins being tailored more towards the target environment when the attacks are, again, more targeted. Uh, so I think you get a little of both. You know, no need if you're just spraying and praying, going after the average, you know, if you're going after my mother, you don't need to use the sophisticated techniques on her. You're going after something more sensitive, like maybe industrial control systems. You might want to hide a little bit lower, and so you would tailor that to use, you know, some of the applications more commonly used. So are low bins better suited for espionage, or is there reason to use them for monetary gain? I think it could be both. A good example in espionage would be, I don't want to get caught, I want to use an esoteric, maybe third-party application to either load my application, or maybe even just not get caught running or hiding. However, we've seen like point-of-sale systems. You know, if you think about that, that's not really used by a nation state actor. That's used by somebody that's looking for monetary gain. And sometimes we'll see them use the actual point of sale system software where it's, you know, processing the credit cards. They'll use that own software to export the credit cards or dump the credit cards for them to be able to gain and use for, you know, financial value and financial gain. So good tactic. It could be deployed both ways, cybercrime and more traditional espionage. This is smart. If you're going to have a supply chain attack, how might you get your attack to spread quickly? Well, managed service providers have access to thousands of computers worldwide. 
So if you attack the MSP, then you gain access and you can attack all their customers, multiplying the number of systems infected just a few short hours. Yeah, a, a good example of this, like when Huntress found the Kaseya incident bas you know, back in last July. Kaseya is one of the major MSPs, and the company produces a product called VSA, a unified remote monitoring management tool. Here's the CEO, Fred Vicola. On Friday, July 2nd, around about two o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, we had received some reports of suspicious things happening. We didn't know if it was an attack. We weren't quite sure exactly what it was, but as third parties, the community, our own monitoring customers, we started noticing some strange behaviors. Within an hour, we immediately shut down VSA. Our cyber defense playbook states very clearly, the first thing to do is to protect and make sure anything that's potentially dangerous doesn't have a chance to harm multiple parties. So within an hour of the first indication of a potential issue, we shut down VSA. That decision was easy to make because we were following a playbook, but very painful for a lot of our customers. The results of this attack, this egregious attack by these cyber criminals, has yielded the following impact. IT Complete, the Kaseya platform, has 27 modules. It only breached approximately 50 of our RMM module customers. The attack was managed very well by several different areas. The modular nature of Kaseya's security architecture or prevented the attack from hindering any modules other than VSA. The rapid response team of Kaseya, as well as the tremendous and immediate support of Homeland Security, uh, they have an incredibly sophisticated cyber capability, which engaged with us immediately. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. So Homeland and the FBI, in conjunction with significant support from the White House. Huntress noticed the ransomware on about 30 of their MSPs that they manage and found the ransomware used an authentication bypass vulnerability in the Kaseya SaaS system. It also dropped an unexpected file, an outdated and expired version of Microsoft's anti-malware service executable into the affected systems. Here's Huntress John Hammond again, discussing with Katie Nichols of SANS the discovery of Kaseya in the summer of 2021. So, John, I'm kind of curious, you know, Huntress was on this really early on and had this awesome Reddit post. Like, what was this like at the beginning when you all first discovered this? What did you think was going on and how did you sort of figure out? Because I know when we first saw it, we were like, is Kaseya popped? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we we started to get reports around around 11 o'clock, I think on the, the Friday, July 2nd. So just before the holiday weekend, uh, we worked in sort of the MSB channel and that vertical there and working with other partners, with other folks in the community. Uh, and some had reached out. I think there were two or three initially that said, hey, we just got hit with ransomware across not only our organization from the MSP, but all of our downstream organizations and businesses that they support, that they provide IT services for. Uh, we thought that was super weird because, okay, if we're seeing multiple organizations be compromised with ransomware, all within the span of like a half hour, uh, something has to be up. And 
really the commonality that we saw between that handful and then as the number soon grew, uh, all of these organizations were using the Kaseya VSA software. Um, and VSA is a remote monitoring or management utility and program. So RMM solution that is what you would use to push updates or support and maintenance on those downstream organizations. Uh, that was really kind of the attack vector and, and a weird procedural supply chain attack. I think we kind of co correlated this with other supply chain, really normally talking about the technical stack, like a CICD thing, an actual update. This was not an update. It was a legitimate vulnerability that could compromise that RMM utility and then hit down through VSA to MSP to SMB and that end of the tree there. So someone broke into Kaseya, a very large MSP, and by virtue of it being an MSP, they were able to break into their customers, in this case, about 800 to 1,500 of the companies out of the total 800,000 to a million total customers. Maybe it's a small number that were affected, but if you're affected, you're affected. Yeah, we were that first phone call to Kaseya, and that's kind of a good example of living off the land. Notice that's on a third-party software, and for those that don't know, Kaseya is a remote monitoring or endpoint management software. And if you think endpoint management can install software on all of the computers that a managed service provider manages. So Huntress is deployed to all their customers, all the endpoints, and we look, and it could be any vendor, it doesn't have to be just us. And the whole goal is when we see something being used like an the RMM was abused, exploited, and used to actually push ransomware. That's a perfect example of that supply chain where the MSP was used. They abused the legitimate living off the land software, the remote management software, and they used that built-in functionality usually meant for pushing patches to install ransomware. A perfect example of this case. And yeah, as a result, you could imagine we have to warn our MSPs when something like that happens. Fortunately, the U.S. government leaned in on this investigation. And by November 6, 2021, the Attorney General for the United States, Merrick Garland, had this to say. Today we are announcing that we are bringing to justice an alleged perpetrator of a significant, wide-reaching ransomware attack. On July 2nd, the multinational information software company Kaseya and its customers were attacked by one of the most prolific strains of ransomware, known as R-Evil or Soda No Kibi. To date, our evil ransomware has been deployed on approximately 175,000 computers worldwide with at least $200 million paid in ransom. As a result of the Kaseya attack, businesses that relied on Kaseya services across the United States and around the world were impacted. Six weeks later, on August 11th, the Justice Department indicted Yaroslav Vasinsky also known by the online moniker Robotnik. The indictment, which was previously under seal, charges him with conspiring to commit intentional damage to protected computers and to extort in relation to that damage, causing intentional damage to protected computers, and conspiring to commit money laundering. The indictment charges that Vasinsky and co-conspirators authored our evil software, installed it on victims' computers, resulting in encryption of the victor's, victim's data, including in the July 2nd attack, demanded ransomware payments from those victims, and then laundered those payments. Two months after the indictment, on October 8th, Vazinski crossed the border from Ukraine 
into Poland. There, upon our request, Polish authorities arrested him pursuant to provisional arrest warrant. We have now requested that he be extradited from Poland to the United States pursuant to the extradition treaty between our countries. The main takeaway, I think, is that now small and medium-sized businesses are being targeted, and they're being targeted perhaps as much as the larger enterprises. I always think sometimes the most mundane is also sometimes the most fun. For instance, uh, in hacking, we tend to use the phrase, everything you know, old is new again. And so the things that are really exciting is within the mid-market and below. We're starting to see hackers using more sophisticated attacks. We're seeing them, the cybercrime groups, ramp things up. And for the very first time ever, those SMBs aren't just saying, I need antivirus in a firewall. They're actually starting to learn a little bit and say, you know what? Maybe I do need somebody that looks for an incident after it happens. And even better, we're starting to get, you know, some phrases like identity. What happens if they steal my credentials, get into my mail, and then move into another third-party SaaS app? And I know that sounds mundane, but coming from, you know, the last time we talked where that wasn't even in vocabulary, the word SIM, the word SOC, XDR, they, they couldn't even tell you what this is. So these are like monumental growth in two years. Unfortunately, it's been provoked by hackers targeting them, so. Managed service providers are Huntress's sweet spot. MSPs provide a full range of security services to organizations too small to have their own IT departments. It's outsourced security. We've got a couple thousand managed service providers, and it turns out these days everybody wants to be an MSP. So last time we talked, you know, VARs, right? Value-added resellers, they wouldn't call themselves MSP, but now they've got an MSP component. MSSPs are kind of a form of this, and so there's a lot of different people that call this, but you're dead right. Uh, MSPs is our primary. And Huntress grew out of VC that was focused entirely on the Mid-Atlantic region. Kind of unusual, given that most companies come out of Silicon Valley. Yeah, there was a, uh, at one time, there was a kind of like a startup accelerator they have out here. Y Combinator was in Silicon Valley. We were part of a group called Mach 37. And Mach 37 was a big deal for in the Mid-Atlantic for a long time. Uh, nowadays, I think we might be one of three companies still surviving. So, But it is nice to know that we're holding it down for the Mid-Atlantic. In fact, I first learned about Huntress through Mach 37, the VC that was focused on startups in and around the Washington, D.C. area. Often, someone from the government has a great idea for a commercial product, but they have no idea how the commercial world even works. Much the way I really don't understand how government procurement cycles happen. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's pretty hard transitioning from government sales cycles to... SaaS, so having somebody to take you under their wing, and they benefited. I think their return, they're at like 250x valuation on their investment with us, so I hope it was mutually beneficial. <laughs> and lately, Kyle's business has been good. Yeah, for us, the companies continue to grow. You know, last time we talked, we were 70 employees. We're now 200. Um, what's neat for us is our ability to grow as a team is directly proportional with how many companies we're protecting. We're very agile, very lean. We are venture capital backed, but we still have control of our company. So it's been one of those situations that despite the private markets kind of collapsing in valuation, Huntress has had phenomenal growth without having to sacrifice and take some of those dangerous terms that a lot of venture capitalists are talking about this week. So we've talked about small and medium-sized businesses. 
What exactly do we mean by that? The easiest way to describe it, it's 2,000 employee companies all the way down to 20 employee companies. And we tend to call that the mid-market and below, or the small and mid-sized businesses of the world. So bringing this technology, bringing the security down to this level, this is the same thing that we saw with firewalls that are now in every home. You're right. You're exactly right. So that adoption has been pushed by the cat and mouse game. And so, yes, the same adoption of hackers found new opportunities. And as a result, they've driven new technology adoption. So in an odd way, vendors should thank them. It's, it's, that's a peculiar comment, but <laughs> there is truth to it. The mitigation and subsequent arrest of individuals behind Kaseya attack is an example of the recent emergence of public-private partnerships in the information security world. Yeah, so the National Security Council has been really great about pulling in all kinds of different public and private you know, partnerships. Some of those were ransomware focused that we got to participate on. Others were more like when the Microsoft Exchange incident went down and being able to help remediate 90,000 worldwide companies with on-prem exchange when Huntress was working that project and was calling, we did six weeks of incident response to this, and thankfully it was collaboration with us and other private groups with the DOJ, who they said, you know what, we're never going to get the mid-market and below to patch these. And that was some of the collaboration that enabled DOJ to authorize the FBI to do an operation and remove the web shells for those businesses. That's massive collaboration that hadn't happened you know, ever before this. So uh, we're really thankful for that public-private partnership. So what about the emergence of public and private partnerships? What is it that gets Kyle the most excited? So probably the biggest thing for me that gets me excited is more and more people are realizing that enterprise cybersecurity is important. They're the biggest businesses in the world. But more often than not, people had traditionally forgot that the SMB is 99% of the businesses in like the US, for instance. And so for the first time ever, we started seeing more of the White House focus on new regulations, new disclosures, and trying to improve what we would call security hygiene for the mid-market and below. And that doesn't sound very important until, for instance, you have a colonial pipeline situation where they're not an enterprise player. They're a mid-market company that impacted quite a bit of the East Coast when it came to gas prices. So I'm pretty excited to see that you know, renewed focus coming from the top down. Historically, we haven't seen great cybersecurity legislation truly making a difference. So for me, it's a little bit biased, but I tend to get really excited when I start seeing people realizing there is this 99% that can impact all of us, and we're finally giving it some attention. So I conducted this interview in the hallways of RSAC 2022. What has Kyle seen at RSAC that's been interesting to him? So um, awareness on industrial control systems is definitely here, finally. Uh, it seems like we're rehashing a little bit of 2021 with the supply chain. You know, everybody's talking about solar winds. Some people talking about Kaseya. Log4j is kind of the one that caught me off guard of how long. You know, we all knew the S word, solar winds, was a bad word when that happened. But Log4j, it seemed like it took people months to figure out their software was used and abused. So I like that renewed focus because that's a lot harder to find those type of attacks. Um, but maybe the part that I'm enjoying the most is just everyone back at it, realizing that, hey, we can be better together. We got to be safe out here. And that's, uh, that's some of the morale I needed uh, over the last year and a half. So I'm just excited to be here. When I think about ICS, I often think of embedded systems. So how does living off the land play in embedded systems? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of companies that focus on industrial control systems proper. What I mean by that is they tend to call them OT or other technology. Huntress traditionally doesn't live on those embedded systems, but OT is almost always surrounded by IT. So you can imagine that's a bit of a better together scenario. What's neat about those industrial control systems is most people forget, yes, there's big power companies, big water companies, but for every big one of those companies, there are dozens of these small rural municipalities that are powering entire counties. And so, uh, you know, although we don't have a primary focus on the OT technology, great companies like Dragos are a great example of somebody who's just killing it in that space. We often sit side by side, especially in the rural environments where, <laughs> let's be real, they don't have anything beyond a basic IT team. And so that's been very fulfilling for me. I'd like to thank Kyle Hansleuven for making the time during RSAC to talk with me about living off the land attacks, in particular, talking about Felina and Kaseya. As Kyle said, these attacks are fairly off the shelf, which means that organizations shouldn't think that they're too small to be attacked. Rather, it's the large enterprises that continue to better their defenses, and it's now the small and medium-sized businesses that are next in line. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative information security podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I'm just another off-the-shelf, living-off-the-land attack, Robert Vimosi. Robert Vimosi.